Hello. Welcome and thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast, The God Beyond the Bible. Our podcast is released weekly each Friday. The content of each episode is based on the questions and curiosities we all have about God and the Bible. Many of our topics are considered taboo in the minds of the mainstream church. You will find our discussions to be, I think, refreshing and often far from traditional. But we don't just skirt around these complex issues, but confront them head on, and not in the way you're used to hearing them discussed on typical Christian talk shows. I'm Alan Rowland, creator and host of The God Beyond the Bible. As of the launch of this podcast, I've been a pastor for more than 35 years. My co-host is my daughter, Trayson, and our engineer, co-producer, is my daughter, Tabitha. Our mission is to encourage our audience, along with us, to open our minds to the reality that God is simply too big to be fully explored or experienced by the reading and studying of a single ancient work. In short, the Bible's not the sum of God, and to think this is to limit what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in our future. So with introductions made, thank you for listening, and let's dive into the topic of the day. Welcome, Seekers, to podcast number 46 of God Beyond the Bible, a podcast made by Seekers and for Seekers. We've got some shout-outs today to Rudy, Visual J, Gil and Gil, and Debbie. All right. And our last episode was number 45. We discussed death, facing our own mortality and the customs, traditions, and industry, or big business, if you will, uh, that's developed around death. Uh, namely funerals, cremations, and such. And actually, I did mention one of the things, cryogenics. Yeah, that's becoming a serious thing. Are you familiar with that? People being frozen. And I think it costs like $30,000 and they freeze you. And then sometime way in the future, and I'm like, and I'm thinking, now what if the people that froze you don't outlive you? But anyway, that's another that's another deal. But I, did, I got to listen to that and I thought. They I, freeze you and then what? They freeze and bring you back to life Later. later. When they have the technology to procure you. Procure you, yeah, or whatever. Okay. Okay, all right. So, okay, in this episode, we're going to approach a topic that has so many facets. It's like a little bit like, you know, nailing nailing jello to the wall. (laughs) We're going to talk about morality and values. And this was a topic that I suggested. And the main thought on this topic seems to be, by many people's standards, that there is no morality outside Christianity. Or perhaps some believe that Christianity is the only standard for morality. And I'll tell you how this all started. About a year ago, I think it was, I was listening to a podcast. And the person on the podcast made the comment that they were glad they were a Christian because if they weren't, they would probably be a, a serial killer or something. We listened to that together. Oh, yeah. It was just a while. And then about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I had a thing pop up and there was an article on Christianity and morality. So it got it all back in my head again. <laughs> so anyway. Well, um, I guess let's start out here in segment one with the definition Uh, Morality can be defined as the standard or code by which we determine right and wrong or what is acceptable or unacceptable behavior. Well, some argue uh, that the thing that set the Israelites apart from the rest of society was their strict moral code and ethic given to them as the law of Moses. So the question is, was the world in total chaos? Was man just living like animals with no moral code before the law? I mean, the law came... Uh, I think it was about, it was at least 1,500 to 2,000 years uh, after Mm -hmm. Adam. 
mark. Oh, maybe nearly three. Well, I'm it not actually sure. was twenty five hundred. I had to look into this. <laughs> I'm just throwing a lot of numbers around. I'm just okay. guessing. The law was actually given <laughs> in about they estimate between twenty four and twenty six hundred BCE. And I started doing a little bit of looking. So Adam was like four thousand, though, right? Yes. Adam would have been so fifteen. We're looking at four hundred or something like that. But I started looking into some stuff because I started questioning: Was the Mosaic Law the first, you know, written anything? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually found out that fifteen hundred years before the Law of Moses, the Egyptians actually had a written law that they called the Moral Code of Mayat. And I just want to give you, this is an excerpt from an Egyptian tomb writing okay. that was reciting a part of that moral code. Okay. I now, have given, now, this was long before Moses. This was a thousand years before Moses. Okay, before the law came down. Mm-hmm. All right. It says, I have given bread to the hungry, clothed, clothed the naked, was husband to the widow, and father to the orphan. Does that sound anything well, like yeah. the... Looks, sounds pretty close to the... Yeah. And there, there are actually 42, they call them anti-vows, because rather than saying, I will do this, it's I will not. So they're an anti-vows, and there are 42 of them that are called the anti-vows of Mayat, and you can look them up And online. that was kind of a code, that was the law for the Egyptians. Yes. Well, that's pretty cool. Okay, so we know that according to what little we have written on the topic, that the deterioration of moral code was what prompted the great flood of Noah's day. Yet it can be argued that it was actually the influence of the Nephilim that was the focus of the destruction. It seemed to have been at least. I mean, it seemed to have been when they came into the picture that everything. And there's a problem with those who argue that there was no moral code before the law and commandments. Abraham lived 400 years before the law. And we can see that even then society had certain codes they lived by. When Abraham would lie and say that Sarah was his sister... Abraham would be shamed by the kings who questioned his code of mm-hmm. ethics. That's right. And the problem we encounter is with our narrow view that what is recorded in the Bible, that is the history of the Jewish nation, was the only people God was concerned with throughout the time period of history it covers. The truth is, there is evidence in the Bible itself that God was interacting with all of mankind, all of mankind mm-hmm. in lots of different levels in lots of different ways. Yeah, one of those is one of those examples is in Isaiah nineteen twenty five. It says, "For the Lord of heaven's armies will say, Blessed be Egypt, my people; blessed be Assyria, the land I have made; blessed be Israel, my special possession." And this verse really seems like Isaiah is trying to get Israel to understand that although they do have a special role in God's plan for mankind and the future of the earth, they're not the only people who God is concerned with. Or caring for and working right. through. And and that's almost the impression we get when we read the Bible is that, well, it's just these people and everybody else is just bad people. And I think it's really easy to forget that we are reading a Jewish history written by the Jewish people and not a history of the world. Well, right. we sense this with Jonah's mission to Nineveh. Mm-hmm. After much resistance, Jonah finally goes to Nineveh and he delivers the message of God's intent to lay waste to the land. And which warning the Ninevites all repent in sackcloth. Now, let's pause for a moment. How did they know this religious maneuver? 
I don't think Jonah told them in these the are, message. You know, these are Gentile. These right? are the, these are the other people. These are the rest yeah. of the people out there. Uh, this wasn't an option in Jonah's message, as far as we know. They must have had their own type of worship or relationship with God that somewhat mirrored the Israelites' way of interacting with God. That's all we can, I mean, we have to come to that conclusion Mm -hmm. almost. So also keep in mind that this mission to Nineveh seems to be more about letting the prophet Jonah, along with the rest of Israel, that God himself is concerned with. No, that God. What? Let them know. Let them know that God. Sorry. (laughs) Can we just do that sentence over again? again. Also, keep in mind this mission to Nineveh seems to be more about letting the prophet Jonah, along with the rest of Israel, oh, that's because no is not in there. Know that God Himself is concerned with and interacting with other people and nations besides just Israel, who seem to be under the impression that the rest of the world was not worthy of God's attention something that plagued them throughout their history and eventually led to the destruction of Israel and the system of temple worship they had determined was the only place God was to be encountered. And guys, we're only mentioning these things to liberate our minds from the narrow view that we get from reading the history that is preserved for and by the Israelites concerning God. There was morality, values, and creeds that people outside the text of the Bible lived by and that seemed to rival the integrity of the Jews. Other nations were living by laws, codes, and standards that were very similar to the standards that were handed down to the Jews in Moses' Mm -hmm. law. So we have evidence in the Bible itself that there were moral codes that existed in society and cultures before and aside from those handed down in the Bible. Uh, And with that thought, we'll pause to regroup and we'll return with part two. Welcome back to segment two. Um, In segment one, we pointed out the evidence that there were moral codes and standards being followed outside the Jewish culture recorded in the Bible. So in this segment, let's explore what it is that develops and dictates our own moral code or standard by which each of us live. While religion may be a contributing factor, there are many other things that play an important role in what we adopt as a moral code or how we determine what's right or wrong, acceptable or unacceptable. And remember, let's not let's not lose sight, sight of the, the what our pod today's episode is about and it's about is do people outside of the Bible is there morality outside of the Bible? Mm-hmm. Do people practice morality? In other words, if you took the Bible out of society, there'd be no morality. Right. Or before Mo- Moses' law come, there was no more. People were just living like animals, just killing and raping. And and we and we actually know that really wasn't <clears throat> the case. So let's just look at nature. Let's just start by taking a look at nature. Do animals have a code that they live by? Let's use birds for an example. Some birds, such as the blue jay, are notorious for invading and robbing the nests of other birds, breaking up the nest, even stealing or eating the eggs of other species of birds. In fact, we as humans don't really care for this species because they're ruthless opportunists. Okay, but we can look at other behaviors such as the mating habits of the cardinal. They choose a mate for life. Once a cardinal male and female have chosen one another for mates, they are strictly monogamous in the relationship. They mate only with one another for life. 
I mean, this seems to be a type of moral code, if if you will, that is genetic. And we have recently learned, I think, that crows are the same way. Mm-hmm. They sure are. Yeah. And crows, just on a side note, are really interesting animals. Mm-hmm. They're, never they're really intelligent them. and really interesting. Mm-hmm. They are opportunist. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they do have certain codes that even they, they do. Right. by. Yeah. So... If certain animals have a code of behavior that's genetic, or in other words, that's ingrained from birth, do we as humans have any moral code other than that which is developed by our environment and instruction? Here's an example. An infant that's just beginning to crawl and explore soon learns that they can pull themselves up to the coffee table. Let's say there's a holiday centerpiece on the table. It's found that often before the baby reaches out and grabs the centerpiece or whatever it may be in the center of the table there, the baby will look around the room to see if anyone's watching or if they're going to say or do something, even if there isn't even anyone else visible in the room. I mean, is this a type of genetic sense that they're about to do something that somehow feels wrong? Well, let's look at another example. The first time that uh, one baby grabs something away from another baby, the baby who has the object taken will demonstrate a reaction as though they sense that they have somehow been wronged. Have you ever witnessed that? Yes. Uh, it, it may be a scream. It may be crying. Or maybe they attempt to take the object back. You know, I will tell you, there was a research study done around 2006. I think they said it was. They started doing this. But it was a team of researchers at Yale University's Infant Cognition Center. They're known as the Baby Lab. Okay. They began running a series of studies on babies all under 24 months old to see how they, how much they really understood about good behavior. Right. So what they did is they basically had a puppet show. And in this puppet show, there was a gray cat trying to open a plastic box that he couldn't get it open, couldn't get it open. So then this bunny and say, a green shirt comes along and helps him open the box. Well, then they turn around and do the same scenario again, except this time um, it is like a bunny in a different colored shirt, say an orange shirt, comes along and what he does is slams the box shut before he runs away. So then they would offer the two bunnies to the child and like 80, something more than 80% of the babies all reached for the one who displayed the good behavior. That's interesting. So I thought that was kind of neat. And again, we don't tout any expertise in child psychology (laughs) by any means, but it seems that there are certain natural codes in life itself that are contributors to what we perceive as good morals and ethics. Well, we've come to look at the commandments as an expression, or we have, and I just want to say we, I mean us here, our little family, our group, not everyone, but we have come to look at the commandments as an expression of God's natural law for mankind. For example, we know gravity is a natural law of physics. Uh, Long before Isaac Newton recorded any thoughts on the law of physics, this Mm -hmm. law of physics known as gravity, we're told, of course, that he was inspired to contemplate the phenomenon by an apple falling from a tree branch. That's what I was taught in school. Right. But long before it was explored and expressed as a law of physics, gravity nevertheless was still in effect. Yeah. I mean, it operated and was respected as a law of nature long before it was ever understood, studied, or written down. And the commandments are much the same way. Man seemed to understand that it was wrong to lie, steal, murder, or have a sexual relationship with another person's mate long before it was expressed in the Ten Commandments, as we saw in the case of the so-called pagan kings who scolded the man of God, Abraham, for his unscrupulous behavior. Mm -hmm. And I also um, 
they are actually also reflected in those 42 anti-vows of Mayotte. All of those. All of those are laws. listed. Yeah. Another example is the study of tribes of different people in places. Of course, everybody uses dark Africa, but... Uh, it is discovered that though these people have not been influenced by the moral standard we claim is founded in the Bible alone, they have certain social and moral standards that they live by. They have a way of dealing with those who violate this unwritten code. Granted, some of the things they find acceptable we may find to be totally unacceptable by our code or creed. However, they still have certain unwritten codes of right and wrong and what's acceptable and unacceptable. Right. The Native American Indians had certain strict codes that they operated by. History tells us that they brokered and agreed on deals and terms with other tribes, setting standards on how they would treat and respect one another and they dealt harshly with those who refused to honor the moral and ethical codes that they adopted. And let me throw in here, when the European came, Mm -hmm. and with his Christian code of ethics, they thought we were some of the most unethical people. Uh Yes. Because of the way that we treated each other. We claimed we had the creed. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors claimed they had the creed, and the, and the, and the Native Americans couldn't believe how unscrupulous <laughs> yes. that we were. Well, with that thought, let's regroup, and we'll return with part three of God Beyond the Bible, episode 46. Here we are with part three of episode number 46 of God Beyond the Bible, the podcast by Seekers and For Seekers. And today's discussion topic is morality. And more specifically, is there any, you know, it's this argument. It seems to be this ingrained in us as believers and as Christians that if you don't have the Bible, there's no morality. People just live like animals. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you know, if we don't have the Bible for the code, uh, anybody that don't live by, or just, they're just, they're just animals. Right. So more expressly, we want to take an open-minded look at a way of thinking that seems to dominate a lot of the Christian culture today. The question is, does Christianity equate to morality? Or in other words, are there people who live good lives and live by strict moral standards aside from those who embrace the Bible and more expressively the Christian faith? And I've got to say, of course. Yes, definitely. I I meet them all the time. I I run across them all the time. Well, someone said the test of our ethic and morality is what we do when we know that no one else is watching. (laughs) And I had to, I have to tell this story Um. Tabby and I had a Sunday school teacher, Danny, Mm -hmm. when we were younger, and he told this story, and I have not forgotten it, even though I was probably only about 11 then. He said, when you pull up to a red light and stop because there's another car around, that's being good. He said, but when you're in the middle of nowhere at midnight and you pull up to a red light and there's no one in sight in any direction and you still stop, that's morality. That's a good example. Good. I like that. Well, what this does, it tests our true moral ethic, of course. It determines our true motivation. Is it the fear of being exposed, judged, and ridiculed by our peers? Or is it that our standard is ingrained in us as a way of life? Uh, it, you know, that means it's internal, not external. After all, the commandments themselves are external, as all laws mm-hmm. are. Do we respect the 25-mile-per-hour school zone law because we know the safety of the children is at stake or because we risk getting a big fine if we disregard it? (laughs) 
We have all witnessed examples of Christians, church leaders, and those at the pinnacle of Christian organizations engaging in and being exposed and shamed, in some cases even prosecuted and jailed, for their failure to comply with the moral standard that they claim to promote. This is a perfect example of someone being exposed to and educated in the external morals and standards of Christianity, yet somehow failing to adopt it as an internal standard. And we can witness this on the pages of the Bible itself, in the aforementioned Abraham, or in Jacob, or King David, and many others. The list goes on and on. Uh, We often don't consider the other side of this discussion. The people who don't claim a faith in God, yet do live incredibly moral and ethical lives. Have you ever been impressed with someone's clean living and good moral character and learned later that they're not a believer? I have, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, this has happened to me much. Of time. I just, may, I was presumptuous in thinking this person is just a good Christian person, good, and they were living by a strict moral code. And, mm-hmm. and then I would find out later that maybe they were even atheist. Right. And then on the flip side of that, <laughs> have you ever had encounters with people who struck you as having pretty low moral standards only to find out that they were active in the church and maybe even perhaps the leader in the church yeah i've had this more than one time i mean i think one of my favorite phrases with that is i wouldn't trust them to feed my fish if i had fish (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it seems that the social political turmoil that we're experiencing in our nation today is with the adopted mindset that we can somehow legislate morality. I think I skipped you there, Tracen. And that's okay. But let's take a cue from the Bible itself. We often read on the pages of the Old Testament where a new king would take control of Israel and they'd tear down all of the pagan temples, the groves and statues that were erected by the people under the previous king. And in some cases, the king would, by decree or passing a law, mm-hmm. would, anyway... After tearing down the idols and pagan temples, the new king would decree that all of the people of Israel would come together and vow to worship only Jehovah and follow the Jewish customs and laws of conduct and worship. Now, King Asa was one of those. Yes. You know, we just Mm -hmm. recently had a study on King Asa, and we read from an author who just talked about how great and how God honored because King Asa does this. Okay, we read where by threat of prison and death, the people would destroy their idols. They had come together as described by the new king. However, we don't have to read much farther to find that the people were soon back to their idols and worship of foreign gods. Now, here lies the truth. We may, by decree of external laws and threat of punishment, get people to do what we think is right. But their hearts are not changed. Their internal morality or ethic has not been altered. And right. that's this is all about the topic of thinking somehow we can legislate good morals. Because you cannot you cannot change someone's internal morality out of fear of punishment. It will never work. No. Jasmine not. Patterson wrote an article and it was the the name of the article was The Biblical Case Against Legislating Morality. Uh-huh. And she asked in there, she said, As Christians we have to ask. Do we want people to look like they are changed by Jesus? Or do we want people to actually be changed by Jesus? Do we want to encourage people, albeit unintentionally, to have a form of godliness, but reject the power of Christ that actually transforms their lives? Yeah. I like that. And and that's a really good question. And what we're talking about here, let's just go ahead. And and you're not going to hear us get real political in in these discussions. I'm so sick. Yeah, We're all (laughs) just sick to death. But the reality is... 
we've mentioned this before. I think somehow that uh, that uh, uh, we think that we want a Christianized government, and now we're going to talk about that. I mm-hmm. think in the in the end of it, mm-hmm. but you know, we act like we think that we can just make people do what we want them to do. We'll just legislate the laws. We'll just make them do. And let's just be honest. I mean, we found that out, and I don't want to get off on this on this uh, rant here, <laughs> but we found out that you know we think we can legislate. Whether whether it be gun laws, whether it be whatever, and that this will solve problems. Mm-hmm. If we'll just legislate, it'll solve. Or on the other side, on the Christian right, we think, well, we'll make this illegal. People won't. Did we learn nothing from prohibition? Exactly. I think one of my favorite, one of my friends had a phrase that she uses a lot, Steph, hi, that you can't put a Band-Aid on an antibiotic problem. That's true. That, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And I will tell you guys, I'll go ahead. In my research, there was a Lifeway research study that was done a year or two ago. And it said that 71% of evangelical Christians believe that there is a moral decline in our country because too many laws that legislate morality have been struck down. That that's <laughs> oh what goodness. the problem is. That's what the problem is. Yeah. Trace and I'm going to let you have seven there. Yeah. yeah. Well, the American Christian culture really seems to be adopting and modeling itself after this flawed concept that we can somehow legislate and force our perception of morality on society. It seems that those who participate in this type of rhetoric somehow are convinced that a system of laws and judges who interpret these laws will solve the ills of society. The reality is, guys, legislating our own perception of good morals and ethical behavior is no more effective today than it was in the pages of the Old Testament or in Jesus' time. That's right. If you are of the impression that you want a church-controlled government, just do a little history (laughs) study, and you just might discover that to be exactly what our forefathers came to this new world to escape. And this is also a good time to look at what Jesus was up against in the New Testament because the Second Temple Age... Jews, they were a theocracy of their own, even under Roman rule. Oh, they yeah. still, yeah, they were able, and they had a, they enforced moral laws. Though Jesus even told them, said, you know, you don't obey any of that yourself. Uh huh. You're putting this right. burden on people that you don't take care of yourself. Are we ready to conclude? I think, I think we, we are. are. Okay, this is my conclusion. No other person can dictate a change in our personal, moral, or ethical code. In fact, no external force will ever change the mind of anyone. Jesus knew this when he came introducing the people who had been dominated by external moral laws and threat of punishment for not meeting the perceived expectation of those administering the law. And he came to introduce them to a new way of life. It's a life motivated by something internal. It was allowing God to influence us by spirit from within. Someone said that the Christian movement today is more concerned with uh, who the next Supreme Court nominee will be uh, than helping their fellow man develop a meaningful internal relationship with our God and Creator. We have become divided and exclusive instead of inviting and inclusive, exactly like the religion of the day that Jesus came to uproot. Why must we insist that only those who share our creed are worthy of our concern, our compassion, or our time? We, uh, why must we perceive uh, any who do not share our particular brand of social, moral, or ethic uh, to be our enemies? Someone to judge and demean and consider unworthy of God's favor or concern, much like 
Jonah's perception of the people of Nineveh in his day Mm -hmm. when he was angered because God showed mercy and compassion on the undeserving people of that land. Are any of us deserving? Did any of us get where we are by our own efforts? No. Did any of us choose what cultural influence we would be born into or by which moral or or ethical standard would be established in our lives? No. All right. So we living up to our promise not to skirt around these complex issues nor yield to the pressure of those who consider themselves to be the final authority when it comes to the things of God. Until next time, God's grace, peace, and love be on you, our fellow seekers, from all of us here at God Beyond the Bible. Did you enjoy listening to God Beyond the Bible? Do you have an idea for an episode? Connect with us today. Visit our website at godbeyondthebible.com, all one word, or send us an email at email at godbeyondthebible.com. Or you can visit us on Facebook. Just type God Beyond the Bible into the search bar.